I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. foray into the reality show craze, NPR presents Discussing Foreign Policy with the Stars. This week's show features Jersey Shore's Snooki and her teammate, former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan. Hey, you guys. Hello. Thank you for having me. We are also honored to have Ambassador Gunnar Polson from the Icelandic Ministry of Foreign Affairs and his teammate, Mr. Gary Busey. Yes, I am honored myself. Thank you. Alak soup. Finally, British Prime Minister Cameron Brown and his compatriot, Victoria Beckham. Bravo! What a pleasure to be here. Your hair is appalling. (laughs) Thank you all. Let's get on with the show. A question for the stars. According to CNN, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has asked the Ivory Coast President Laurent Gbagbo to step down or risk sanctions to allow the true winner of November's election, Alassane Ouattara, to take office. If violence in the Ivory Coast persists, at what point do you believe the UN should step in? Snooky. Are there like uh, sandwiches here or? All right, Mr. Busey. Hey, was I the lethal weapon or was I on that one with Bruce Willis? I can't even remember. All right, we'll just call that a pass. Um, Victoria. You know, please don't look directly at me. Your eyeshadow is making me nauseous. All right. I think we're done here. This has been Discussing Foreign Policy with the Stars. Coming up, it's like Dancing with the Stars meets Crossfire meets the Partridge Family meets Jackass. It's, it's... you guys. Kind of a big giant show tonight. We're very, very excited. Uh, We have a woman to talk about her hilarious new sketch comedy show, Portlandia, premiering on the Independent Film Channel. Carrie Brownstein is here. 
And a man who in many ways has defined independent films since his first film in 1981, director Gus Van Sant is here with us tonight. And our musical guest is a master drummer and one of the founders of the musical movement known as World Beat, Oboe Adi is with us. Before we get to all that, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our stunning siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, poet Scott Poole, the author of Hiding from Salesman, will take one single hour, the amount of time it takes most poets just to ink up their quill, to write an entire poem that encompasses what he's learned tonight. Welcome, Scott, and get working. And we can't do any of it without our extraordinary house band. Please welcome Jim Brunberg and the M-Chops. Thanks, Jim. So as I mentioned, the show Portlandia is about to premiere, and for our podcast and East Coast broadcast listeners out there, you should know by now that our show is recorded in Portland, Oregon, the city that the show is about. And now the people who live here have seen a few pieces of the show, and for the most part, they, they seem to love it and are hugely excited, and they, they're wooing periodically. There are a few naysayers out there on the net who have posted comments like, well, there goes any hope of seeing another dime of VC money in Portland. And uh, as a city, we've officially jumped the shark. And my personal favorite, the irony of this Portlandia show is that it's on IFC and no one in Portland has cable. (laughs) I would just like to ask these people to calm down. Did people decide what Texas was like based on Dallas? Okay, that's actually a bad example because they really did. (laughs) But anyone who thinks they can generalize about an entire city is either an idiot or works in advertising or both. I was an army brat growing up, and if there's one thing I learned, it's that it may be difficult at first, but freaks can find their tribe in any city in the world. For example, I went through fifth grade in Denver, Colorado, and it was around this time that that all the girls started needing bras. But... All the girls in my school were skiers and jocks, and bras were gross and girly. So if you got one, you did whatever you could do to hide it, and eventually most of us just threw them out. Well, then in sixth grade, I went to Jackson Middle School in San Antonio, Texas. And I was standing on the bleachers in my first choir recital when Stacy Klein leaned over and said, completely appalled, Oh my God, are you not wearing a bra? And it just made me wish that upon moving to a new city, we all just got a list of do's and don'ts. And this is cool, and this is not cool. Don't go here to get a haircut, because they'll give you a bowl cut, and you'll look like Mo from the Three Stooges in all your job interviews, and they'll ask you to do the eyeball pokey thing. That's just hypothetical. That did not happen to me. But back to sixth grade, I eventually found all my drama freaks and was forced to buy a bra, not because of peer pressure, but because of gravity. And everything was fine. You know, not everyone in San Antonio was like Stacy Klein. Not everyone in Portland is like the people you'll see on Portlandia. A sketch comedy show. 
I have gay friends who live in Alabama, Republican friends who live in Portland, and the woo-wooest, most new-agey, I am surrounded by such abundance. Thank you, Mother Earthy friend who lives smack dab in the middle of New York City. People have brains, and they know how to use them. It may be because I work in comedy, but I'm generally okay with a joke at my expense as long as it's funny, and this show's funny. So stereotype away, because you're all giving our slackers jobs. Thank you, Carrie Brownstein. We'll talk to Carrie a little bit later about what she thinks of all this. For now, let's move on to our, our first guest. He was designated a master drummer at age six, and he's one of the members of the first generation of African musicians to bring their traditional music to Europe and America. He's a composer and has over 20 years on the international music scene. He's known for his ability to embrace tradition while integrating new ideas and influences. He's the first African-born artist to win the National Heritage Fellowship Award from the National Endowment for the Arts, and he's here tonight to play for us. Please welcome Obo Adi to Livewire. Thank you. 
Welcome to Livewire, Oboe. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted to talk, you're, you're the son of a medicine man in Ghana, and at six you were designated a master drummer. How do you get that designation? Were, the, were there a lot of six-year-old master drummers around well, at the no, time? No, no. Uh, the, uh, the, my father's spiritual music, uh, it, it's not for children to be there. I, wa I should have been in bed that time, but I was hiding. We, I did that. We, we hid under a bench that the drummers, uh, master drummers sit on it, and we're here. But there was lots of drinking involved, so <laughs> <laughs> master drummer was highly intoxicated. I think he, uh, he, he went to some, some um, you know, funeral wakekeeping before. So wow. at midnight, he wasn't able to play again. And nobody knew what to do. My father was going to possess them, and you know, the spirits would come and dance and dance. I was hiding there, and I said, I can do it. Right. And you were less likely to be drunk at six years old. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah well, I was there. I can't do it. But they said, this is not kid stuff. Go to bed. Why are you still here? But one of my aunts who was very busy, but he said, if the kid said he's going to do it, let him do it. Somebody like you, you cannot do it. But the kid said he's going to do it. So let's do it. And, so, and, and you were I, skilled enough at the time. Yeah, from, from midnight. So they packed a lot of pillows and uh, bricks and... They put a master drum on it. I sat down, and um, I started doing it. And we, so fr from then on, did you, did you play for those yeah, well, that's, ceremonies? Yeah, it went on until uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, and that's when I was uh, awarded as a, a master drummer. But that didn't give me a license to stay up late and do it. <laughs> <laughs> so once in a while, if nobody's around or somebody's sick or something, I did it. But, You'd get pulled in. Yeah, but I, I was awarded. But with uh, social things, I do. I was a master drummer for that. And when you were, when you were in high school, I read that you, you listened to a lot of pop music. So how did that affect when you were playing the traditional music that you... Well, we have traditional, like what we just finished is called High Life. Uh, lots of British and American influence you know, came into high life. But what we just played was real high life temple, mm -hmm. you know. But reggae and all these things got into high life in Ghana. And is that what, what, what the definition of world beat music is, is sort of combining all of these, all of the, the music from these cultures? That's right. That's what, uh, that's what, world, uh, world beat music, it came out when I recorded. The record stores didn't know where to put my, my, records, you know, whether to put it. You know, in this country, everything has been categorized. Right. So, <laughs> and then they called me, where, where should we put your, uh, a, you know, your album? I said, put it in jazz, put it in here, you know, everywhere. They say, no, no, we can't do that. What is, what is the name of the music that you play? And I say, it's world music. The beat is world beat. I want everybody to enjoy it. Yeah. And that's what brought the word, word beat. And, and, well, we're yeah. glad you did. Um, and you're going to come back. You'll be, we'll be hearing from Oboe later in the show. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining us. Oboe Adi, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Oboe Adi, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like a great date 
but without the part where you're wondering if you're going to make out later. Because we will make out later. Public radio style, which means hand-holding while discussing the situation in the Congo. Coming up, Portlandia's Carrie Brownstein, director Gus Van Sant, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. spent 12 years in the seminal 90s indie rock band Sleater Kinney, even earning herself a spot on Rolling Stone Reader's List as one of the most underrated guitarists of all time. Since the band's been on indefinite hiatus, Brownstein's been busy as a music blogger for NPR, forming a new band called Wild Flag, and creating short comedic films with her friend Saturday Night Live's Fred Armisen, calling themselves Thunder Ant. Now the two have hooked up with the Independent Film Channel and have created six episodes of a sketch show called Portlandia, set in Portland and about Portland, produced by SNL creator Lorne Michaels. Here to talk about the show, please welcome Carrie Brownstein to Livewire. There's a lot of anticipation for the premiere of Portlandia on IFC, January 21st, especially here in Portland. Uh, Along with that excitement, there is also some controversy. At the center of the controversy is a group of local folks calling themselves the stereotypical citizens of Portland, Oregon, concerned about being lampooned on Portlandia, or Scopacablop. (laughs) Several members of the group are here tonight, and Carrie... Uh, I apologize, but they would like to address you in a town hall format. And I said it was a bad idea, but I got voted down. That's okay. I'll talk to them. Okay, great. So here now is Scopacablop. Blessings. (laughs) My name is Bodhi Love Dragon, and I'm one of the founders of Scopacablop. By day, I run a cruelty-free pest control service for community gardens in Southeast. I'm known as the Slug Whisperer. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be signing books in the lobby. Carrie, we want to share these words. The people of Portland love to live, and we live to love. And most of all, we live to love to laugh. The question is, will you be laughing with us or at us? Well, I hope you and everyone else will be laughing at Fred Armisen and me. Oh, I see what you did there. That, that's funny. I'm going to hand this over to Barb Sawyer, fellow Skopaka Blopper and president of the Lesbian Timber Workers Union. I 
doing? Love your music. Thanks. Uh, I didn't know there was a lesbian timber industry. Yeah, knock on wood. There's a 12% chance that wood you just knocked on was timber felled by a lesbian logger. Now, like Bodie say it, we're worried that on this Portlandia show with you and your thunder pants, you won't look past the rain to see our true colors. Yeah, it's a freak flag we got flying, but we all know how the world feels about freaks. Now, I'd like for us to hear from my friend Kip Schnitzer, poet, sixth-generation Portlander, and inventor of the tall cumbent bike. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never heard of that either. Well, it's a, it's a tall bike, and it's a recumbent bike. It's a tall cumbent bike. Um, anyways, I, I was going to read a poem about you here, but when I, when I wrote it, I thought you were Corn Tucker. Uh, <laughs> there are some really great rhymes, too, but now they don't make much sense. Um, I, I had a good line, though. Uh, Fred Armisen, don't harm us, son. Uh, doesn't matter now. You know, I think I hear where you guys are coming from. I don't want people to worry that Portlandia is only mocking Portlanders. The reason Fred and I were inspired to do this series and set it here is because we love Portland. We know it's more than a quirky city populated by skewed variations on weird stereotypes. But it's not. Nobody knows that better than us. Here, I'll show you. Let's pass the mic around. The rest of you, state your name and occupation. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Ted Gund. I'm a massage therapist and a chanterelle mushroom wrangler. <laughs> Hi, I'm Cinnamon Wind, unemployed sex worker, Reiki practitioner, and barista. I'm Mike Bluth. I play Captain Kirk at Star Trek in the park. <laughs> also, also a barista. Hi, I'm Balthazar Gomez. I'm a calligraphic blogger. I, uh, I handwrite musings on urban growth and the art of calligraphy on hemp stationery. And then I use them as trade liners at the food carts. My name is Ferial. I run an elitist record store. None of you have any business going to because everybody's taste in music sucks. Brian Pomeroy, non-alcoholic home brewer, competitive beer grower. I'm Meadow Meadows. I don't own a television. I'm a barista. Hi, I'm Jeff Hamilton. Oh, wait, I didn't want to say my name because I'm a biodynamic ganja farmer. <laughs> Whoops, can I redo that? So, you see what we mean, Miss Brownstein? Uh, hey, why are you scribbling in that moleskin? Oh, hang on. Okay, biodynamic ganja farmer. Oh, yeah, this is good stuff. Okay, season two. Well, at least nobody said they work in a feminist bookstore, you know? Oh, oh I do, yeah, yeah. Part-time. Yeah. <laughs> Our point is, we are low-hanging fruit. Easy pickings. Uh, Slow-moving targets. And we're afraid that when this comes out, we'll be like Minnesotans after Fargo. Or like the New Jerseyans after Jersey Shore. Or like people from the South. <laughs> See, Portlanders are used to indirect communication and passive aggression. We are too thin-skinned for the kind of direct ridicule we'd have in store. Look, I... I'm not really sure what you guys want from me here. When you introduce Portlandia to the world, please be kind. Yeah, and if there's a laugh at our expense, please make sure it's an expense we can afford. I don't want to tune in and see some clown making a mockery of me. Don't worry. If we had a slug whisper, we'd have you play yourself. Me? Really? 
Oh my God, on TV? Sure, I yeah. Oh my God, where do I sign? And, and uh, Carrie, I, I've always felt that tall, cumbent bicycle poets are underrepresented on television. Well, maybe you can change that, Kip. Oh my God, I think I'd like that. And Barb, this could be a great way to let the world know about lesbian timber. Well, yeah, like the fact that New Orleans is being rebuilt with 12% sapphic forest products. <laughs> Hey, gang, all of a sudden, I can't wait for Portlandia. Who's with me, huh? I'm with you, Bodie. All right. Our thanks to Scopacablop, and our apologies to Carrie Brownstein. (laughs) Carrie, let's talk about the show. Welcome to Livewire, Carrie. Thank you. It's Thanks. great to have you back. Thanks for having me. How, so how did Thunder Ant originally come about? Well, f- Fred is an amazing drummer, and, and we were fans of each other's bands, and he said, I'd like to come to Portland and work on something with you, and I wow. assumed it was music, and uh, he said, no, I'm going to be playing Saddam Hussein, and um, I was in this all-female band at the time, and I thought, yeah, if I'm going to play with a guy... Of course, I want to play with Saddam Hussein. That's like the first logical Absolutely. thing. Yeah. So uh, he played Saddam Hussein. He kind of played him like he was Joe Strummer or Pete Townsend <laughs> yeah, with this British accent. And I was a, uh, the host of a cable access show. So that was um, getting the first interview post-bunker. Mm-hmm. So we, we filmed that in a basement. And... We didn't even, I don't even think we put it up online. It was just for ourselves. So we, then about once a year, we, we got together and we made these sketches. And that was Thunder Ant. And it was just because it seems weird to hang out with someone that lives 3,000 miles away. If you're not in a romantic relationship, you have to establish a reason to hang out. Other, right. Otherwise, it's awkward. Sure. Well, you feel like it has to lead to something otherwise you if you're just ki- hanging. Yeah, you have to kiss. And yeah. You we, didn't want to kiss him? Well... I have kissed him in Portlandia, but up until then... I, uh, yeah, in Portlandia, you play a man. It's quite disturbing, actually, with a mustache. Really? Well, they lowered your voice to such a degree that it was just... Uh... No, you guys are raising my voice right now. <laughs> You're right, they lowered my voice. Carl, welcome Carl Brownstein to the show. Um, well... We wanted to play a quick clip of the show for anybody who hasn't heard it yet. Do you remember the 90s? You know, people were talking about getting piercings and getting tribal tattoos. Yeah. And people were singing about saving the planet and forming bands. Yeah. There's a place where that idea still exists as a reality. I've been there. Where is it? Portland. Oregon? Yeah. Dream Remember when people were content to be unambitious, sleep till 11, just hang out with their friends? I mean, they had no occupations whatsoever, maybe working a couple hours a week at a coffee shop. Right? I thought that died out a long time ago. <laughs> Not in Portland. Portland is a city where young people go to retire. Dream of the It's really accurate. 
Um, and, and what you missed because you were laughing was what I thought was one of the most brilliant lines of it, which is, Portland is where young people go to retire. <laughs> and that's the most off-quoted right now on, on the internet. Um, so you guys were just, just kind of in your basement making these fun videos. How different has this process been with IFC and suddenly bringing in a crew? And um, certainly the, the production values have been raised quite a bit here. Um, so is it still the same kind of fun or is, does it feel a little bit more, more high pressure? I don't know if it feels more high pressure, but it, it definitely feels more like a communal effort. And we were able to work with about 40 or 50 local uh, Portland crew members and we hired a bunch of local actors and we brought in Jonathan Kreisel as the director and he really elevated the show to, to be more than just a series of sort of disparate sketches. Uh, Fred and I often just had an idea, like let's play these feminists in a bookstore and we'll just talk for three hours and edit it down to two minutes. And... Uh, <laughs> John helped us, you know, in terms of the writing process, come up with characters and more importantly, narrative arcs. So I think that, I think the formalizing of the process was something we really wanted to do. And, and that's been the greatest blessing that IFC and Portlandia has given us is that we have a focus and we're able to do this with a bunch of people, all with the same spirit of just kind of celebrating and being in conversation with Portland. You know, we don't really feel like we're lampooning anyone but ourselves. Well, and I, I, I was lucky enough to be able to see the first couple shows, and it really felt that way. It really felt like, like you were using Portland as a jumping-off point, but you guys were the unbelievable jackasses in, in each one of the stories, except when you played yourself, at which point you were fascinating and brilliant. Um, <laughs> but when you were playing the characters, I mean, these amazing and but but in, but spot on characters, you know, as if and have you? I know that you've lived in the Northwest most of your life, but you were actually my whole life. I've only been able to stay away from the Northwest for six months at a time, and then I feel a strong pull, and I have to come back here. Um, well, I think I think one of the if there's a common theme in Portlandia, it's and I think we can all relate to this. Is there these there's these ideologies or these groups or these people and they you know, profess to be very progressive and, and we want to be progressive. And in order to sort of, there's this spirit of inclusiveness, but then there's all these really hard rules to follow. Yeah. It's just like, okay, so it's, it's so difficult. It's not just about being good. It's, you have to be good in a certain way. And a lot of the Portlandia characters are on either side of that dynamic. We're either the people making these completely esoteric rules that no one can follow, or we're the people confounded by those rules. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, it, it, and the dynamic works really well because, yeah, it's either the fish out of water thing or, um, yeah, or you're the other fish. Something like that. Um, <laughs> so I know that Fred really loves to work improvisationally. Um, for most people, that's terrifying. How are you with, how comfortable are you with that way of working? Well, fortunately from playing music for a long time, I think that a lot of live performance in music is improvisation. And a lot of Slater Kinney was getting onto stage and, you, and, and figuring out a way of taking what we had, which is just, you know, the kernel of something and creating something anew from that and being spontaneous and, and being able to make a moment happen. And so even though I was 
totally out of my element a lot of the time with, with Fred. Uh, I at least understood what it means to, um, to be spontaneous and to um, just kind of embrace what's happening. So I think I had an easier time than uh, some of, we had some pretty amazing guest actors come on the show that were used to following scripts. Yeah. And um, actually Gus is in a... Gus uh, Van Sant. Yes, exactly. Gus Van Sant is... Um, and we were just talking earlier tonight about how he said, well, I had this script and then I realized from the first line that we weren't going to use the script and set <laughs> it down. So the show is Portlandia. It uh, premieres on IFC on January 21st. Well, we look forward to it, and thank you so much for joining us. Carrie Brownstein, everybody. Thank you. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show made just for you. If you're Trina Quarthau of Modesto, California. If you're not Trina, please stop listening to Trina's special show. <laughs> Trina, you should subscribe to our podcast. You can find it on iTunes or visit our website at livewireradio.org. In 1998, audiences experienced a movie so startling, so suspenseful, it was unlike any they'd ever seen before. Except one, which had the same name and plot and shots. It was Gus Van Sant's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from Gus Van Sant. Psycho, a movie this groundbreaking only comes along once or twice. But just when you thought it was safe to go back in the shower for a third time, it turns out it's not. Coming soon to a theater near you from the mind of M. Night Shyamalan, the remake of Gus Van Sant's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from Gus Van Sant by M. Night Shyamalan. Starring Mel Gibson as Norman Bates. Are you calling me crazy? You think I'm crazy? Yeah, Yeah, you want to see crazy? I'll tell you. (laughs) And introducing Melissa Sander, the internet's grape stomping lady, as the woman who gets stabbed in the shower. The most faithful shot-for-shot remake since the one right before this one. So true to the original remake of the original, you'll become confused. Almost exactly the same, except for the trademark Shyamalan twist. You know it's coming, and if it hasn't already been spoiled for you, you'll spend the whole movie waiting for it, while the guy next to you loudly speculates if every plot point is the twist, and when it finally happens, it's a disappointment. Don't miss M. Night Shyamalan's Gus Van Sant's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from Gus Van Sant in M. Night Shyamalan film, a Spike Lee joint. Our next guest is a director, a screenwriter, musician, and author. He's been nominated for two Academy Awards for directing for his films Goodwill Hunting and Milk. He won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2003 for his film Elephant, which was based on the Columbine tragedy. 
His uncompromising vision has come to define independent film with iconic films like Drugstore Cowboy, To Die For, and Last Days. His upcoming film, Restless, is about two lovers who are preoccupied with mortality. And with Van Sant directing what he called a death trilogy, they may have something in common with him. Please welcome director Gus Van Sant to Livewire. show, Gus. We're very excited to have you here. I wanted to, to just start off talking a little bit about when you were younger and how you initially got into filmmaking. I read that you were born in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and that your family moved quite a bit. And in high school was when you got interested in Super 8 filmmaking. And what was appealing about filmmaking to you at that point? Um, well, I was in high school and I was, um, <clears throat> I was a painter. So I was watching the. I was in living in a suburb of New York, and I was watching the uh, New York underground filmmakers. Um, we were show, shown sort of a Canadian version of that. The Canadian Film Board had short films that we were shown in class when I was in junior high, actually. And uh, you know, it's a lot of painting on film and something that like films that seem to be made by painters. And so I related to that. So I started playing around. So. A lot of the films that, that you've made seem to be about the family dynamic, uh, whether it's about your chosen family or your biological family. Is there something about that dynamic that interests you? Um, yeah, I guess um, I'm not positive exactly. We moved around a lot. I uh, lived in probably like five different places growing up. And uh, maybe just reestablishing yourself and finding new sort of family units outside the family or feeling like the outsider over and over again and finding new, uh, a new ground was something that sort of uh, started to become a, a theme of the films. So I recently read an interview that you did with Madonna where you actually interviewed her. And one of the things that you said to her was that sometimes making a film, you feel like people are conspiring against you because you're constantly being told that you can't do things. You can't film at Yankee Stadium. You can't get the actor that you want. How do you work past that, especially when you're a sort of a quiet, unassuming person? Um, well, so that's sort of a piece of advice that I had given. I wasn't giving Madonna that advice because I think she had experienced it, but... Um, <clears throat> when people start start making films, I usually tell them that at some point they will feel like um, maybe so many things are going wrong that they'll they'll suspect uh, it's being devised by some outside source mm -hmm. if they're paranoid enough. And I am paranoid enough enough, I think so. Um, I think it was it's just a way to to tell them not to freak out, you know, as right. they're making their films. I mean, it can seem like. You know, however many things go wrong, and things pretty much always go wrong constantly, uh, that, you know, they should just uh, play it cool and, like, deal with it rather than, than maybe cause a scene. Well, I was, I was watching the behind-the-scenes for Jerry. You looked so comfortable and laid back with all, you know, all these people asking things of you. Is that how you feel or do you just um, pretend really well? No, I think really it well? was because um, it was July in uh, Death Valley, and it was 130 degrees. <laughs> so we were pretty much just moving really slowly <laughs> to stay alive. So that's not your normal affect on a film no. set? I don't think so. 
On Jeremy, for instance, we started in Argentina because there was an actor's strike in the United States. So um, <clears throat> we ended up in northern uh, Argentina in a park, but it turned out even though it was, a, it was near the equator, it was actually quite cold and the actors couldn't um, say their lines without their teeth chattering. <laughs> so we, we decided to go to Wadi Rum in Jordan. So we flew over there just at the same time as uh, the first 14 um, terrorists were convicted of uh, uh, blowing up something in, in Yemen. And so there was a travel alert. So um, we went online and looked for another location and we traveled to, uh, by then the actor strike was over and we traveled to uh, Death Valley to finish the film, which is you know, a good indication of like how you should just play it cool. It, the world isn't really conspiring against you. Unless it appears to be. Which it seemed to be. Which it really seemed to be on that one. And that film, like the others in the Death Trilogy, were largely improvised. I think you call it the Death Trilogy, or or other people call it Um, that. Once we made the third one, yeah, we called it the Death Trilogy. Yeah, and it was Elephant and Jerry and, was it Paranoid Park? No, it was Last Days. Last Days, days, Last Days, right. Um, You seem to feel, when you do your own films, a lot of times Hollywood will bring you a film, but those feel very scripted, whereas the projects that you do on your own, you seem to be comfortable working more improvisationally. What's appealing to you about that that way of working? Um, Well, I think the first time, I I had done a little bit of it just sort of during the making of scripted films, but Jerry was was a film uh, made intentionally without a script. It, we at one point we did start to write a script, but um, we uh, the um, my collaborators Casey Affleck and Matt Damon they didn't like what we were writing, so um, we sort of uh, sort of put it over by the fireplace, and um, eventually we needed some paper to start a fire, and so we we started to use the script, um, and then on the first day of shooting we we realized we really needed the script, but. And we didn't have it, but you know, but the the whole idea was to do it without the script in the first place. So um, we kind of made it up. But yeah. <laughs> the intention was to to see if we could, you know, uh, do that. Create something and, from nothing. And so we made, you know, a really quiet movie, actually. Absolutely. So in some ways, we couldn't. do There was that. so little dialogue in that film. Yeah. Well, and and speaking of that, uh, we were lucky enough to be able to go to your studio and watch. Uh, what is a silent version of your new film, Restless. Can you talk about how that silent version of the film came oh, yeah. about? Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think it, when we were making uh, Milk, um, Sean Penn had said that uh, Terry Malick would uh, film a silent take every time that he <clears throat> did a scene. And that was, I mean, I always uh, uh, took that to mean, like, sometimes you need the actors to move around without talking. Otherwise, you can't sort of use it as maybe a visual glue uh, to connect two shots together or whatever, um, <clears throat> that it had a use. So we started doing that on Milk, and um, it was fun, and you know, we, we did use some scenes. Sometimes we just used a scene that had no dialogue because it was more descriptive without the dialogue. And we did the same thing uh, when we made Restless, and uh, we had, you know, done it enough that we actually realized we had the whole film done as a silent film. So we edited that together as a DVD extra and put um, cards in between where we needed the dialogue. 
Yeah, just like in the old old silent old, film yeah, like, cards. Yeah, uh, like dialogue cards. Yeah. And so, yeah, now we, there exists a silent version, which you saw. You saw the silent version because we couldn't find the... The actual. The talking. Well, I was... I was amazed by it because it really, what I had learned from it was just how little dialogue you need. I think you had the actors clearly play multiple beats in the scenes and we got the whole thing. I mean, the, the, the people from our office who had gone to see it were just, you know, crying at the end of the film and, you know, we pretty much got every moment and there were just a couple of lines from each scene in, thrown up on the cards. Did you learn anything as an editor and as a director from throwing that piece together? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I just really thought that the end result was quite interesting um, <clears throat> and that the story did have a real, um, you know, um, intense thing about it without the dialogue, that you didn't need necessarily um, everything that we had in the dialogue. Yeah. And uh, were there ever times when the actors would play the beats in, in, in silence and then sort of learn something from that and then you would reshoot? Um, I, we always did the silent at the, um, the very last. And uh, because we were trying to sort of like keep, be on the go, we would often forget. And so um, we offered the crew members like $20 if they would remember at the end of the, the takes. You know, because we literally would just go like, okay, that's a wrap, let's go. And then we would realize, oh, we didn't do the silent. Version, so we had this little contest, um, <clears throat> but um, we always did it at the end. So they, I don't think that they were learning from the silent takes exactly. So the restless is about two characters who are obsessed with mortality, and if you look at your recent body of work, it feels like there's generally a death somewhere in the film. Uh, what are you hoping to illuminate about mortality in these films, or or are you? The three films that were that make up the quote unquote death trilogy are films that are made about things that were never able to be reported because there was a missing element. The first one was Jerry, two guys went into the desert and one guy came back and the other guy was um, killed by his friend. But there was only one side of the story. So there was this mystery that could never be sort of uh, revealed and a, a good place to go in as a dramatist and like make something up because no one will ever really know the answer yeah. and the same with last days like uh, Kurt Cobain had had uh, a missing three days and there was like just no way anyone seemed to be able to find out what happened during his last three days so again a mystery that, that we were able to go in and um, just sort of make up our version of what might happen to somebody like him during that period mm -hmm. um, and same with Columbine the two boys were dead at the end, so like nobody knew what was Nobody going. knew why. Yeah. So they're really more about a mystery mm -hmm. that we filled in as uh, dramatists. Yeah. So what are you working on now that Restless seems to be? <clears throat> um, I've been painting, just trying to relax. Mm-hmm. Not really going thinking back about painting. film. Good. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Gus Van Zandt, everybody. And now it's time for the... 
audience haiku. We have asked our audience to expound on three subjects in the form of haiku. Portlandia, drums, and psychos. Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Mr. Jim Brunberg. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their winter ale, Two Below. Two Below Winter Ale, pushed to a nearly freezing state, it has a bright, hoppy afterglow that makes you almost not hate the cold, wet winter with the white, hot heat of a thousand suns. (laughs) Yes, now you only hate winter with the white, hot heat of 999 suns. Thank you, New Belgium, and now audience haiku. Jim, I have one. Can I get some uh, musical accompaniment? Something uh, happy, maybe a hint of intestinal distress? <laughs> Glad Portlandia isn't set in Denver, because Denveria? Gross. <laughs> Melinda B. Thank you, Melinda B. Hey, Jimmy. Jim, can I get some ethereal gods of old music? There we go. The drunk nut won't shut up about H.P. Lovecraft. Only in Portland. Thank you, Lee, who is 18 to 29. And now from the audience to read her very own haiku, please welcome Joanne. Joanna. Jim, can I get something kind of simultaneously mellow and rhythmic? Mellow and rhythmic? Yes. Nice. Drum circle. Nice thought, but mostly equals stoned white boys with no rhythm. I was going after the stoned white boys from Joanna. Great job, audience, on the audience haiku. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Rockin' Rye. With whole grains and sweet caraway rye, he can tune your bass, tease your hair, and teach you the guitar solo to Stairway to Heaven. Dave's Killer Breads, just say no to bread on drugs. Coming up, writer Margaret Malone, the oatmeal's Matthew Inman, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. eventually get Oboe Adi back out here. Oboe! 
and you heard him on Livewire Radio. 
And now, as promised, he's been working very hard the last 56 minutes to help digest all that's happened in the last hour. Please welcome back poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. Tonight's poem is dedicated to Kate Sokoloff. Thank you, Kate, for making a huge difference in my life, as I know all of the cast thinks the same. I learned tonight that I want to be in charge of the stereotypical depiction of Portlanders to the larger populace. Why do Carrie Brownstein and Gus Van Sant get to have all the fun? For instance, I feel that facial hair macrame is grossly underrepresented in the current stereotypical view. If I was in charge of a show on Portland, the macrame beer would be a featured element, would become a nationwide facial hair phenom. Imagine, if you will, just under the lip, a wooden stick, and weaving and dodging from that stick the perfect representation of an owl fabricated into the facial hair of its owner. An owl pot holder, if you will. And when I say pot, yes, I mean pot. What Portlander wouldn't want to demonstrate their craft skills, their horticulture skills, mulching prowess, make a little money, and constantly have the scent of ganja below their nose? Yes, the women too. But that's just the start to my stereotypical view of Portland. I would also like to add that everyone plays a banjo, two ferns. Could we add people with macrame beards that play banjos to ferns while wearing shorts even during heavy rain? And everyone should have Tom Peterson t-shirts on because Tom Peterson had a cameo in all early Gus Van Sant movies. Because if everyone is playing a banjo, that means when you're walking down the street, every person you pass is someone you're in a new band with. Because everyone knows that every person in Portland is in every band in Portland. Plus, everyone knows this is definitely worth something filming. And I know the stereotype is that we're filming everything we do and that everyone is producing an independent film. That's simply not true. Everyone is doing remakes of every film that was created between 1995 and 2008 in Portland or documentaries on the making of those films or the making of paintings about the remakes of the making of those films. It's quite a hip new thing, let me tell you. But none of those remakes had macrame beards in them, so they had to be refined. And that refilming was so interesting that they made further films about that refilming of that macrame beard remakes, which required some silent movie players, people who could play piano to the narrative of the movie, but no one did that anymore because everyone had switched over to banjo, so people had to reinvent the piano, which ended up looking a lot like a banjo with keys, which I hope doesn't become the stereotypical Portland sound, but if it does, let's just say it feels right, like saying, boo-da, boo-da, boo-da. Scott Poole, that's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for coming out. Thanks to our guests tonight, Carrie Brownstein, Gus Van Sant, and Obo Adi. 
Our house band was Jim Brumberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Paul Evans. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Buchanan, Andrelli, Altshul, and Sullivan, Fitch & Associates, the Falcon Art Community, and Willamette Week. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as You Fine People. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. A special thanks to those businesses who so generously contributed to our end-of-year fundraising campaign. The Hotel Deluxe, the Cannery Pier Hotel, Schoenfeld & Schoenfeld, Tin Shed, Ranch Whiskey Bar, Martin Babra of Galaxy Sailor Productions, and Dave's Killer Bread. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeffrey Simmons. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, performer Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pat Janowski. Our guest writer this week was Michael Fetters. Special thanks to this show go to Bobby Roberts of the Court and Fat Boy Show. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management by Drew Flint. Guest wrangling by Furiel Harbin. Theme by Courtney Mondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 